Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God of the wilderness, you make a way out of no way and sustain everyday creative resistance. Create tables of belonging with a mother's fierce love making peace. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is the last week in our Epiphany series, Voices from the Wilderness. Uh, In the season of Epiphany, the church basks in the light of Christ, but to our surprise, the light of God shines upon us from the other, from the marginalized, as God listens attentively to the voices of cries from the wilderness. In showing mercy to the oppressed, God is revealed to them in ways that the powerful do not know so that our salvation is wrapped up in listening to their voices. Over the years of this series, we have listened to voices of black theology, feminist theology, queer theology, Latin American liberation theology, indigenous theology, eco-theology, uh, and it's all been beautiful. And this week, we turn our attention again to the voice of womanist theology. Now, when this voice is mentioned, womanist theology, I hear a lot of people ask, what is womanist theology? Is this just like a new slang for feminist theology? Is it different? And to introduce womanist theology, we need to introduce a concept that this series has been building towards, which is intersectionality. Uh, We've listened across differences of race, differences of gender, differences of sexuality and class, and earthkeeping and the harmony way. But what happens when these differences start to overlap in people's experiences? We've looked at the feminist perspective on God, the need to overturn patriarchy, but how does this perspective change when it's women of color, particularly, who are talking about God? We've looked at black theology, but how does that change when it's not only race that is in someone's experience, but also their experience of difference of gender? Intersectionality examines how layers of marginalization create oppressed of the oppressed. When the power difference between me and you is not just between race, but also of gender or class or sexuality and so on, you end up with further and further layers of marginalized voices, people who experience multiple layers and directions of difference in society. And so in our society, all women experience patriarchy, but not all women also experience racial oppression. And not all women also experience class oppression. And not all women experience oppression for their sexual orientation or gender identity. These differences kaleidoscope and create matrices of marginalization and difference, which are related but different kinds of experiences. So womanist theology, which we turn to today, is the expression particularly of women of color talking about God and their experiences. 
It highlights the strength, the capacity, and the wisdom of everyday black women who, with God, make a way out of no way. So firstly, while womanist theology has a rich dialogue with feminist theology, it's not just black feminism. Uh, Feminist thought tends to be elite because it tends to be academic, uh, and it's largely dominated by white female voices. And so many womanist thinkers find troubling undercurrents of racism among white feminists. But there's a different, uh, a deeper difference between feminism and womanist. Because feminist thought sees patriarchy as the source of all women's oppression. But Dolores Williams, who's one of the key uh, womanist theologians, points out that black women don't experience patriarchy the way that white women do. Because while oppressive, white patriarchy aims to protect the well-being of white women and white children. It's patronizing, but it's protective for white women. Patriarchy in its white institutional form can be understood as the systemic governance of white women's lives by white women's fathers, brothers, and sons using care, protection, and privileges as instruments of social control. Instead of experiencing patriarchy, Dolores Williams argues, black women experience what she calls demonarchy. Demonarchy can be understood, she writes, as the demonic governance of black women's lives by white male and white female ruled systems using racism, violence, violation, and death as instruments of social control. For example, consider that it is black women in our society who have to have the talk with their sons. The talk being how to avoid drawing the attention of the police. A talk that white women in almost all cases do not have to have. Womanist theology approaches God through the experience of black women struggling against demonarchy, not patriarchy. So we've distinguished womanist thought from feminist thought, but we also need to distinguish womanist thought from black theology. Uh, A few weeks ago, we listened to black theology and its use of exodus as the witness to this liberating work of God. Uh, Black theology is big on liberation, the liberation of those who are oppressed. And while not dismissing this entirely, womanist theology argues that the liberation tradition doesn't express the experience of black women. Alongside the Moses Exodus strand of liberation thought in black theology, Dolores Williams finds a strand that emphasizes female activity and de-emphasizes male authority. Uh, For more than 100 years, Hagar, the African slave of the Hebrew woman Sarah, has appeared in the deposits of African-American culture. Hagar's story is quite different than Exodus. Hagar, who is made to bear Abraham's son, flees from her mistress Sarah's harsh treatment, and she meets God in the wilderness and names God the one who sees me, but she doesn't experience liberation. Instead, God directs Hagar to go back to survive, because what God is after for Hagar is primarily to secure her survival and her son's future. And so Dolores Williams notes, God's response to Hagar and her child's situation was survival and involvement in their development of a quality of life appropriate to their situation and heritage. And so the female-centered tradition of African-American biblical appropriation could be named the survival quality of life tradition. 
Unlike black liberation theology, here's the point, womanist theology focuses on the creative resistance of black women who, with their God, fight to create a quality of life under conditions that they cannot change of death-dealing violence. So, we're now in a place to begin defining womanist theology. First, womanist theology helps black women see, affirm, and have confidence in the importance of their experience and faith for determining Christian religion. Uh, In the words of Alice Walker, the origin of womanist are in the black folk expression, you acting womanish, meaning wanting to know more and in greater depth than is considered good for one, outrageous, audacious, courageous, and willful behavior. And unlike feminist thought, which tends to focus primarily on gender issues, African-American women could not limit their concern to the survival, liberation, or well-being of women alone, because the entire African-American family, mother, father, children, and black kinsfolk, was oppressed and confronted by systemic violence. And so womanist concerns radiate outward from black women's well-being to the black family, to all of black society, to all of society, to all of creation. Womanism is the wisdom of black women to bring justice for all that is. I really, I really love that. Womanism is the wi- wisdom of black women to bring justice for all that is. Now, we might ask, well, why, why black women? Why black women and other women of color? Laylee Phillips responds that it is their experience of intersectional struggle that makes black women crucial for our society today. She writes, black women and other women of color have been at the bottom of every social hierarchy created by man based on their intersection of race, class, and gender hierarchies and systems of identity. Black women and other women of color have come to understand what it means to live in the margins of multiple communities simultaneously and function, even thrive in the in-between. And so black women are poised to be leaders for the rest of humanity at a time when humanity is approaching a crisis point in its own survival. So with this definition of womanism in mind, what are the distinctives of black women's experiences that womanist theology highlights about God? Again, we can only really make a start on this, but this morning I'd like to touch on three things. First, their attention to invisible and grassroots wisdom. Second, mothering as creative resistance. And third, dialogue at the kitchen table as peacemaking. So first, attention to women's invisible stories. We saw earlier that feminist theology tends to be academic and elite. Uh, But Laylee Phillips writes, where womanists differ from other critical theorists is the trust they place in non-elites to envision and accomplish social justice ends, inside or outside of formal structures. Womanists just act in the course of everyday life. Start where you are, might be the womanist credo, and one step forward is the standard for progress. Their confidence in non-elites is born from witnessing the ingenuity and grassroots resourcefulness of black women in the face of marginalization and oppression. Dolores Williams calls this daily hidden work miraculous. Faith has taught me to see the miraculous in everyday life, 
the miracle of ordinary black women resisting and rising above evil forces in society, where forces work to destroy and subvert the creative power and energy my mother and grandmother taught me God gave black women. Ordinary black women doing what they always do, holding the family and church together, keeping hope alive in the family and community when money is scarce and white folks get mean and ugly. One of the ways that the marginalized are kept out of power is by rendering their stories invisible. Our books tend to be full of the heroic and marvelous achievements of white men and women, and occasionally black men, but womanist thought goes on the hunt for little-known freedom fighters. One story is a story of Milla Granson. Milla Granson was a slave who conducted midnight school for several years. She had been taught to read and write by her former slave master in Kentucky, and in her little school, hundreds of slaves benefited from her learning. So after laboring all day for their master, the slaves would creep stealthily to Milla's schoolroom, a little cabin in a back alley. The doors and the windows had to be kept tightly sealed to avoid discovery. Each class was composed of 12 pupils, and when Milla had brought them up to the extent of her ability, she graduated them and took in a dozen more. Through this means, she graduated hundreds of slaves, many of whom she taught to write a legible hand, and they forged their own passes and set out for Canada. This example of Milla Granson brings us to a second distinctive of womanist theology. As womanist thought brings to light the once invisible stories of black women's creative resistance, one of the categories of wisdom and strength exhibited by women of color is mothering. Now, we have to define mothering very carefully because in a Euro-American culture, mothering is often seen reductively as a lesser role. But womanist theology sees mothering very broadly. Uh, in addition to biological motherhood, mothering in African contexts also includes spiritual mother, the mother is oracle, the childless mother, the community mother. Essentially, motherhood is a set of behaviors based on caretaking, management, nurturance, education, spiritual mediation, and dispute resolution. Anyone, whether female or male, old or young, with or without children, heterosexual or same-gender loving, can engage in these behaviors and therefore mother. Womanist theologians point out how in black women's experience, the broad range of mothering becomes a, a means of resistance. This creative resistance of mothering has a long tradition among the oppressed of the oppressed. In our passage from Exodus today, we find preserved a non-liberation quality of life passage about a group of Hebrew midwives. In this culture and this day, most midwives were unable to bear children themselves, and so they tended to other women's births. They were Hebrew slaves, but also women, but also childless. But in their mothering role of midwife, when ordered by Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew boys at birth, a form of genocide, they resisted. And with backhanded humor, they claim that the reason that they can't stop all the boys from being born is because unlike the Egyptian women, Hebrew mothers are so hardy that they just give birth so fast that the midwives can't get to them in time. This creative resistance echoes the, women, the, the wisdom that womanist theologians find in the everyday lives of black women, protecting, providing for, resisting oppression, and liberating. 
Womanist theology finally pays attention not only to the invisible stories of non-elite women and the creative resistance of mothering, but it also sees dialogue around the kitchen table as a nonviolent means of peacemaking. For womanist theology, the kitchen table is a metaphor that operates something like the kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching. Womanist theology grabs hold of the hidden wisdom and strength by women who set tables, who forge belonging and harmonize different views in conversation. Laylee Phillips is worth quoting at length here. She writes, The kitchen table is a key metaphor for understanding the womanist perspective on dialogue. The kitchen table is an informal, woman-centered space where all are welcome and all can participate. At the table, people can come and go, agree or disagree, take turns talking or all speak at once, and, and uh, they can shout, complain, or counsel, even be present in silence. At the kitchen table, people share the truths of their lives on equal footing and learn through face-to-face -face conversation. In the recent film adaptation of James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk, we see this power in action. When the young protagonist, Tish, discovers she is pregnant with her boyfriend's child, she nervously tells her mother, Sharon. And Sharon's response is to cook a delicious meal, the family's favorite. And she gathers the whole family around the dinner table, and she pours out some of their finest liquor. And only then, she invites Tish to share her news. And while Tish's father struggles for a reaction, Sharon immediately proposes a toast joyfully and creates a table where Tish and the life growing within her are blessed and welcomed. And the whole family follows Sharon's example with joy. Womanist theology sees tables as places of power, of places of inclusion, and the power of listening and making peace. There's many more themes highlighted by womanist theology, but these three, attention to invisible grassroots wisdom, mothering as creative resistance, and dialogue at the kitchen table as peacemaking power, I think these provide us with directions for beginning to rethink our own theology. First, womanist theology invites us to be attentive to our own privilege and our own oppression and how they affect our vision of theology. Asked who can be a womanist, Lily Phillips responds, anybody and everybody, assuming they begin with the identification of their individual standpoints and move toward the harmonization of everyone's standpoints. Meaning, if you come to the kitchen table thinking that your perspective is the only perspective, you will make an unpleasant dinner guest. So, for example, the critique of womanist theology for black liberation theology asks, have they, in the use of the Bible, identified so thoroughly with the idea of Israel's election that they cannot see the oppressed of the oppressed who are there in Scripture? Or for womanists, uh, they might ask white theology to ask, how is our experience of privilege shaping the way we read our Bible and shaping the way we view our God? Is the evangelical story of being forgiven and going to heaven when you die really a salvation story, or is it a privileged story, one which keeps us from hearing the voices of the oppressed who cry for justice here and now? Secondly, womanist theology invites white theology to encounter the God who is mother, who sustains in the wilderness. 
Traditional Christian images for God have been overwhelmingly male, father and son. Since the medieval period, they've become overwhelmingly violent as the cross of Christ, the satisfaction of the Father's justice in shed blood, has become a focal point for Western Christianity. But womanist theology sees the creative resistance of mothering in Jesus' work, like a a mother-like way of transforming tradition and culture so that our lives can be lived more abundantly. Womanist theology sees models like Hagar, the Hebrew midwives in Egypt, and Mary's courageous participation in birthing and raising Jesus as showing forth the mothering image of God. This God does not primarily show power in violent overthrow of enemies like in the Exodus. In fact, the womanist theology looks somewhat askance at the Exodus because they point out that the violent overthrow of the Egyptians leads inevitably to victims making more victims as the wandering Israelites go into the land and kill off whole peoples thinking that that's what God is like. God overturns enemies violently. But maybe the Spirit of God is seen more clearly in moments named by Hagar, where God sees the suffering of the vulnerable and gives them strength to endure oppression through creative resistance. These two taken together, attending to our privilege in doing theology and seeing the image of God in creative sustaining mothering, lead to a final insight, which I think is crucial and provides closure for our whole series. In this whole sermon series, Voices in the Wilderness, we have looked at issues which are systemic and widespread and devastating in our society. Racism, sexism, classism, imbalance between the humans and the earth creating ecological devastation. And one of the reasons I think we tend not to look at these for very long is where do you even start, right? Like, to be honest, most of us are just barely getting by managing our own lives or paying our bills and getting the kids to school on time and doing what we can for our immediate family. Do we really have the time or the energy to tackle huge systemic issues, to radically change our way of being, to save the earth or to include the marginalized, right? Like, this can get paralyzing for us really fast. But I think this paralysis is often the result of a model of salvation as dramatic, effective, and entire liberation, right? It's all or nothing. It's success or failure, which, to be frank, is a reading that stems from a pretty privileged position because we're used to having the power to get things done in the world so that when we face something that's beyond us, we freeze up and say, well, that's helpless, But this is just where womanist theology can help us to drop our privileged ideas of salvation and to see wisdom in the small, invisible, and yet creative resistance that has always been going on. Start where you are, one step forward, with God making a way out of no way. When we face these systemic problems, our responsibility is not to solve them wholesale, to save everybody, to fix it. Rather, we can look for small ways of creative resistance, resisting violence and harm as we see them in the course of our days. Womenists just act in the course of everyday life. The assumption is it all adds up. It all adds up to positive social change in the end. So, Pearl, maybe that's a word for us today. Start where you are, one step forward with God, making a way out of no way.
Will you pray with me? God of the wilderness, you make a way out of no way and sustain everyday creative resistance, creating tables of belonging with a mother's fierce love, making peace. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.